The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Over the last number of weeks, as a part of an ongoing kind of reflection on the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path, I've been in the last year and a half about, kind of in this group, exploring in depth the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. And in the last, I think it's eight weeks, eight sessions or so when I've been here, um, we've been looking at wise effort. So we're coming towards the end of the Eightfold Path, and yet um, we're nowhere close to finish with this series. So I'll be just continuing these reflections. It's, for me, it's, it's been really fun to dive deeply into the teachings on the Four Noble Truths in the Eightfold Path. And uh, the initial kind of inspiration there was um, uh, there's a, a teaching that's says that all of the Buddhist teachings can be found within the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. And so it's really a kind of a using the framework of the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path to explore the variety of teachings that the Buddha offers. And so in the um, um, teaching of wise effort, um, this is... Um, Wise effort is a is a teaching on what that the foundation of wise effort is kind of an exploration and looking at what is helpful in terms of what takes us towards freedom towards letting go of the things that create struggle and suffering in our lives and what helps us to move in the direction of that letting go of the struggle and suffering really the whole of the path can be framed through these, the, the reflection on what helps us and what gets in the way. And so the teaching on wise effort brings this into a very succinct teaching that we should um, let go of those difficulties, those cr- states of mind. And this is, so this, uh, the teaching on wise effort Um, in looking at what's unhelpful, what's not helpful. This is looking at where we have some say, you know, where, where do, where do I have some say in my own life? I don't necessarily get to pick what's happening to me. Yeah, I don't necessarily get to, to control or choose the conditions of my life. And yet the Buddha, the Buddhist teachings all point to how do we relate to those? situations, events of our lives. And that's a place where potentially there can be um, some um, involvement in the mind that takes us to uh, extra reactivity, struggle, suffering, or uh, a kind of a letting go, a, a reframing, or a, a, um, a cultivation of qualities that help us to hold what's happening with some balance, with some ease, with some compassion, with some care. With some joy and delight when things are happening that are, um, are, are lovely and delightful. 
And so the, the teaching on wise effort is about looking at what is happening in our own minds that may be contributing to our struggles. So the, the uh, exploration of um, what is unhelpful is uh, the, the teaching says that we should let go of what is unhelpful. And the, the, the basic teaching on what's unhelpful is states of mind based in greed, based in aversion, and based in delusion. So the, 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 the wanting things to be a particular way, the, the needing, the, the kind of the... It's not okay if it's not a particular way. So that, that kind of greed, that movement out, or the... The, the aversion, the hatred, the animosity, um, those qualities of mind, when we actually look in our own experience of what happens to our minds and bodies at the experiential level, when those qualities are arising in our mind, there is stress in our system. There's tension, there's constriction in our system. And so in the very experiencing of greed and aversion, there's already stress, there's already a kind of constriction and suffering going on that in, um, in a way kind of compounds what's going on in the world. It, it compounds the struggle of what's going on in the world. And then the delusion, the, the, um, basically the, both greed and aversion are embedded with the idea or the view that so this greed or this aversion is necessary in order to be okay at some point as opposed to looking at how am I right now? So in a way, uh, the delusion is willing to forego a, an ease of mind in relationship to what's happening here and now for some possibility for something in the future. And that's a kind of a form of um, um, one of the definitions for the delusion is that um, that kind of belief or view that this greed will lead to my happiness, this aversion will lead to my happiness, and not being aware that in the very moment of it happening, it is creating the conditions for stress and suffering right now. And the perpetuation of that pattern just, it's like, um, um, it snowballs. We tend to respond with greed and aversion, which means we would tend to respond more with greed and aversion, which means that we experience more stress in, and constriction in our system. And so the, the uh, encouragement is towards the letting go of those states. But the letting go isn't like something we can say, oh, I'm just going to let that go. <laughs> but it's a kind of an exploration or a process around what's happening. Uh, how am I experiencing it? And so in a way we let go of our usual relationship to those qualities of mind, um, of just kind of blindly following them, and create a different relationship. Um, Create a a kind of a curiosity. What is it like to be a human being experiencing greed? What is it like to be a human being experiencing aversion? And so it's letting go of our usual habitual patterns around greed and aversion in favor of being aware of them. And at times in that awareness, there may be a letting go. And so, uh, welcome. <laughs> um, and so uh, that's, that's kind of the, the one half of wise effort is looking at um, um, 
the unwholesome, the things that get in the way of moving towards happiness. Um, and uh, the other side is the cultivation of the wholesome, cultivation of, and the, the wholesome is defined in opposition in a way to the unwholesome. The unwholesome is uh, a greed, aversion, and delusion arising in our mind. The wholesome is defined as the absence of greed, aversion, and delusion. And yet there are some positive qualities that are connected with the absence of greed, aversion, and delusion. And this to me speaks a little bit to um, kind of what happens in our practice, that as greed, aversion, and delusion diminish, uh, we, we experience moments and times where they're not happening, we begin to see that the absence of aversion can be felt as connection, as care, as love. The absence of greed can be felt as, again, connection and generosity, a, a kind of a kind relationship. Um, and, so, and the absence of delusion is a kind of a, a wisdom of, of an understanding. And so the, uh, this side of wise effort is about cultivating these wholesome qualities, cultivating love and compassion and joy and um, equanimity and patience and curiosity, a whole host of lovely qualities of mind. Over the past eight weeks or so, we've been talking about this. Or I've been exploring this in the, in the talks here. And um, in the last few weeks, I've been exploring the cultivation of the wholesome. And primarily, um, the way we've been exploring it in, in the last few weeks has been through cultivating these qualities through mindfulness. In terms of cultivating the wholesome we can explore it in some different ways with mindfulness. We can... Um, um, that one of the first things that we, that we explore is kind of in, in seeing the, um, the qualities of the wholesome as being the, the diminishment of the unwholesome. Then one of the things to explore around cultivating the wholesome is to kind of get curious about what's in the way of the wholesome. So what's in the way of feeling love and connection? Oh, a little bit of resistance, some tension, some tightness. And so we, we begin to cultivate the wholesome by seeing what gets in its way. That's kind of one path or way of, of exploring the cultivation of the wholesome. We can also cultivate the wholesome by beginning to get familiar with the wholesome qualities and being aware when they happen. So when there is a sense of generosity and connection and love or, or a sense of um, uh, open-heartedness, we can recognize it. And this can take some familiarizing ourselves with these qualities, and that's some of what we've been exploring in the last few weeks, is to kind of talk about, we spent some time talking about um, uh, loving-kindness, the quality of metta, of, of compassion, of joy, of, um, of patience. We've been exploring some of those qualities of happiness, of cultivating the quality of happiness in our lives and getting familiar with that, with mindfulness. Mindfulness is an is a, is a amazing quality that um, has, has this... Uh, it's kind of got two properties 
to it. Many properties, but two that I'm going to refer to right now. And that is when we um, bring our mindful attention to something that is a struggle, to the difficulties, to the reactive emotions, to... um, to states of mind based in greed, aversion, and delusion. As we bring our mindful attention there, what happens is that we feel the stress and suffering in the moment of those. We recognize that the, the aversion creates some tension. And so the, the very recognition of that is, supports the mind, well, partly I think, and I've said this many times in the last weeks, uh, that there's a kind of a natural movement in our hearts towards well-being, Our system wants to be happy. But we kind of have been using our 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 minds in a in a in a way we that we've been trained to to think about what's gonna make us happy and to think getting what I want is gonna make me happy, getting rid of what I want is gonna make me happy, and not paying attention to what that process of of greed and aversion is doing to us in the present moment. And so as we see with mindfulness, as we, as we see and, and recognize, oh, that's the quality of aversion actually hurts in the present moment, our system begins to kind of realign around its views related to aversion and begins to shift how it relates to that and begins to weaken or um, there's, there's an inclin- kind of inclining away from that in our minds. It's a slow, gradual process, but it begins to happen as we bring our mindfulness to these uh, reactive, difficult emotions. And so that's, that's kind of, you know, it's like when we, we attend to something that is not helpful in our, in our system in terms of this movement towards um, um, release from suffering... The, the mindfulness creates the conditions for that to appear less frequently in our minds. It's a, it's a natural process that just moves in that direction. It weakens those qualities. It diminishes them. The very act of attending to um, something challenging with uh, mindfulness uh, is a form of the letting go. It, it begins to help the mind to let go of those qualities. And when we turn with um, um, mindfulness to the wholesome qualities, to what it feels like to be experiencing connection and love and um, joy or compassion, the, that, um, uh, that experience is felt as, as one of open-heartedness, non-constriction, so the heart experiences something very different when we become aware of the wholesome. When we experience that feeling of connection, of love, of care, of generosity, when we know what it's like in the moment, our hearts understand this is helpful. In the moment it understands that. And so because of this movement towards the kind of natural human movement in the direction of well-being, what our system understands is with the experience of those wholesome qualities, this is the direction to well-being. It's beautiful to recognize that. And so it naturally begins to increase the capacity, it increases uh, the, the likelihood for those qualities to arise more in our minds. 
And so sometimes people ask about wise effort in contrast to wise mindfulness because with wise mindfulness we often say, you know, just notice what's here. Be aware of it. Be mindful of it. And not try to do anything so much necessarily to change it, but just be aware of it. See what happens if you are aware of it. And people hear the teaching on uh, the the stated way uh, wise effort is teaching. Um, Let go of the uh, unwholesome qualities. Uh, um, Explore the possibility of that creating the conditions so that they won't arise in the future, uh, cultivate the wholesome and maintain the wholesome when it has arisen as somehow being um, in contrast because it sounds like a doing, what we're supposed to be doing. And there is a kind of way in which they can be, uh, these wise efforts can be connected with as doing. But also when we practice mindfulness the very practice of mindfulness does wise effort. Just being with our experience tends to diminish the unwholesome and increase the wholesome. So wise mindfulness really supports this whole exploration of wise effort. And, um, and so this is kind of two, two ways... Uh, Um, of cultivating the wholesome. Notice what gets in its way and um, notice when those qualities are present. So that's using mindfulness to cultivate the wholesome qualities. And there is taught in the suttas a more active way of cultivating the wholesome that is an alternative form of meditation practice. The, the metta practice, the practice on loving kindness, the Brahma-vihara practice, sometimes it's, it's called. The, the, quality, uh, the qualities of the Brahma-viharas, and Brahma-vihara means um, literally um, um, divine abiding. So the, these are qualities that um, support our minds to have a sense of ease and peace and happiness. And so the four Brahma-viharas, the four divine abidings, are uh, a metta, translated often as loving-kindness, uh, karuna, translated often as compassion, uh, mudita, translated often as joy, empathetic or sympathetic joy, and upeka, translated often as equanimity. And so these, these are taught often in the suttas. These qualities are, are framed as being worthy of cultivation. In the suttas themselves, the Buddha encourages kind of in two ways of exploring this. One, he encourages a kind of movement in the direction of uh, holding these qualities in our hearts and expanding outwards with them. Um, so the phrases in the suttas go something like, I will abide pervading one quarter, and one quarter here means a, a quarter-shaped section of space, so the area in front of me. I will abide pervading this direction with a mind imbued with kindness. And likewise, the other directions to the side, to the rear, to the other side, so above and below. 
I will abide pervading the world with a mind imbued with kindness, abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility and without ill will. So that's a lovely expression. Um, The teachings in the suttas themselves do not give us much of a clue as to how to do that. It kind of just says, do it. Unfortunately, though, in the commentaries to the, the Buddhist teachings, they do offer some more specific instructions on how to actively cultivate this quality of metta and compassion, cultivate the quality of loving kindness, of compassion, um, in a meditation practice. And so this is, we could say, it's an alternative form of meditation practice that the suttas are offering, which is very different than our mindfulness practice. It uses mindfulness. It absolutely uses mindfulness to, to do it. But kind of like with, um, you know, let's say we could say a pure mindfulness practice is um, just simply settling back and receiving what's happening. In a, in a kind of a, a, a pure awareness practice, we are not even picking something out of the experience to attend to. It's just like, what's here? What's arising? And yet there are times, as, as I said in the guided meditation, that it's useful to pick something, like the breath, and cultivate mindfulness with the breath. Well, what's happening with the metta practice is essentially the, um, the instructions are to kind of orient towards this quality of love, of loving kindness, and direct the attention there beginning to... Um, use mindfulness to support aiming in that direction towards cultivating loving kindness. And the way it primarily does this is through the use of thought. So it's a very different kind of meditation practice. In mindfulness practice, we often try to let go of thought and just receive the experience at the experiential level. In the metta practice, we're actively using thought to aim the mind towards the quality of kindness. And we use thought in a way um, by thinking thoughts of goodwill. So we are actively using um, our thinking minds to begin to aim or evoke the quality of metta. And it may not be exactly that you evoke the quality of metta, but you may be able to connect with the intention to move in the direction of feeling metta. And we could say that the practice of metta, the the formal meditation practice of metta, is a practice of intention, we are using, intentionally using thoughts, thinking thoughts in our mind that are flavored with kindness. And the, the, the thoughts in our mind are expressed in the form of a kind of an intention or a, a wish. So, for instance, the kind of um, usual or... Um, uh, What's the right word? Uh, the the um, the offered the kind of traditionally offered phrases for uh, kindness, for loving kindness, are phrases like "May you be happy," 
or may I be happy, because we also wish this for ourselves in the, in the exploration of cultivating loving kindness, we explore not only doing this for others but for ourselves and essentially beginning to recognize there's not so much of a distinction over time. So we explore, may I be happy, may I be healthy, may I be safe, may I be at ease, and may you be healthy, may you be safe, may you be happy, may you be at ease. So these are the four phrases, may may I or you be happy, healthy, safe, and at ease. And these um, wishes, essentially, they're an expression of a wish, um, are expressed in, in this, um, you know, it, it, it's a may. It is expressed as a wish. And we are, um, you know, dropping, essentially dropping these wishes consciously into our mind and seeing how does that affect our system. So this is where the mindfulness starts to come in. We have to use mindfulness to remember the phrases, but we also use mindfulness in terms of recognizing when we think a particular thought, how does it affect us? And so I'm going to just stop for a moment, or not stop, but just kind of pause on the, the meta side for a moment and reflect a little bit around how thoughts affect us. Because thoughts uh, are very powerful in our human system. We have a very, um, uh, there's a very back and forth connection between what we think and how we feel. And often we um, think based on what we feel. Our our, our feelings are there and our, um, our thoughts kind of are connected with how we're feeling. And yet we can also um, um, see that at times, you know, maybe you're listening to something, um, listening to something on the radio or, or something. I, I, have, I have this experience, uh, not infrequently, where I hear something on the radio and as I'm attending to what's happening, I feel something. So thoughts are arising in, in that somebody else is putting thoughts into my mind with what they're saying. And there's a response. There's a connection. So if somebody is speaking about, oh, I heard this morning, for instance, one thing I heard this morning was that there's a a tennis player, and I can't remember, I don't remember the name, it didn't kind of register, but a tennis player who, if he wins this tournament, is going to, well, he's going, every tournament, every time he's winning, so he's winning right now, and each match that he wins... He's going to donate ten thousand dollars to the um, to the fire uh, in Australia, and if he wins the whole thing, he said he's going to do- donate the entire purse. That was inspiring to me. You know, it, it made my heart open and feel delighted. And so, you know, it's like those thoughts arose in, in the mind. If somebody said those thoughts; they came into my mind, and it had an effect. This kind of process is going on in our minds as well. When we are thinking thoughts, we, um, you know, often those thoughts that are arising in our mind are just simply arising based on our conditioning, our habits. And so whatever those thoughts are, they, they may tend to um, um, keep those patterns going. It's kind of like an engine in a way. 
the thoughts arise and we have a response to them. That encourages more of those thoughts to arise and having a similar kind of response. And so the, the teaching of the, the, the metta practice is pointing to, we can, uh, we can kind of consciously interrupt our habitual flow of thoughts and put some wholesome thoughts into the mind. We may not be feeling that way in the moment. And that is actually okay. We're not trying to construct the feeling in the metta practice. We're exploring what happens as we kind of redirect our, our thoughts, see what happens in our hearts. And so this becomes very much, for me, and this was really where the metta practice began to take on some life, was when I began to look at it as an embodied practice, as a, as a kind of a mindfulness practice around these reflections. So making the reflection, may I be happy? How does that land? Now initially for myself, that did not land very well. I had a lot of self-negativity, and there was a kind of a sense of, I'm not worthy of this. And so that's a piece to begin to recognize and explore and look at. For me, in order to find my way into the metta practice, I had to to take the the bigger picture of the metta practice. So um, um, the... As I said earlier, the the Buddha's instructions for the metta practice kind of say, pervade the all-encompassing world with a mind imbued with kindness. That was not very possible for for me and 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 the commentaries really acknowledge that this is hard for most of us you know that possibility of just broad pervading of of the mind with loving kindness is is it's like we have to take some baby steps and the baby step way is using these phrases but also um um kind of picking particular individuals to start to explore this thought, to explore these, this possibility of wishing well. And the, the suggestions are in the, in the commentaries. It suggests starting with ourselves, um, saying that will be the easiest place to start. And for me, this was not the easiest place to start. And it seems true in, um, in this culture, this may be more broadly true. I've talked to a lot of people for whom uh, wishing oneself well, wishing oneself happiness is not the easiest way in. And so um, in, in the West, we've kind of modified this a little bit to start, and, and the, the commentaries say we should start where it's easiest, and says it will be easiest to start with ourselves, but that doesn't seem to be the true here. And so we've kind of modified it with, in the West, with well, what's the easiest being for you to wish kindness for? And uh, one suggestion often is, is a, a category of being called the benefactor, which is someone who, um, uh, who, who has supported you, Someone, and, and generally it's encouraged to be someone for whom it's very easy to feel a connection. Um, even that was hard for me, but there was one instruction that Joseph Goldstein, um, one of the teachers in our wider tradition, I was sitting a, um, a retreat and he was offering some metta instructions. And in, that, in, that, in those instructions he said, for this easy being, we'll start where it's really easy. He said, pick a being 
And he used this word being, so it took it out of the realm for me of people. He said, pick a being that makes you smile. And my cat popped into my mind. And I thought, yeah, I can wish my cat happiness. <laughs> I want my cat to be content and happy. And it's like, and, and it wasn't like I, I wanted it so that I could get something back from my cat. So it, it had a very pure kind of feeling to it. And that was kind of one of my doorways, you know, to, to begin with my cat. And, and just continuing to practice with it, you know, to, uh, to explore. And, and another teacher offered another way, kind of some other ways of exploring this. Um, uh, she said, um, uh, let whoever wants to send you metta. So in this case, case uh, this teacher flipped it around. Rather than me sending myself metta, she said, imagine somebody who you know, who wants to send you metta. So, you know, imagining, for instance, my, my, um, my mother sending me metta. For me, that was something that was possible you know, to, to kind of envision my mother wishing me well. And so again, it's, it's, uh, it's using our thoughts and reflections to aim the mind in the direction of this quality of this quality of well-wishing, using, using thoughts to do this. Um, so there's a lot of ways we can get creative with um, how we, uh, f- let's say, aim these thoughts. But the, the classic uh, instructions are to start with picking some specific beings, specific people, maybe, for you, or for me, the being of my cat was the place to begin. Start with picking some beings that, um, uh, that you can explicitly bring these phrases up in your mind and wish well to them. And it's often helpful to actually use the name of that person. You know, so, um, Carol, may you be happy, may you be healthy, may you be well, may you be at ease. Envisioning, perhaps, because the use of multi-senses can be helpful. Envisioning. For me, there were two, kind of two different senses that, that worked well for me, or one better than the other. But um, we can kind of envision at times, and sometimes spontaneously images of the other person would arise. And I could feel how the seeing of that person and maybe imagining them smiling would evoke this kind of feeling of connection. Another way for me that was was kind of supportive was um, because sometimes I couldn't have an an image, but I could sit there and kind of have the sense of that person sitting across from me. And there's a distinct kind of quality. Let's just, just try this for a minute. Um, um, you know, bring two friends into your mind, two people that you're relatively you know, close to, and, and, and just let that go for now. Just know the two friends that you're going to be exploring in this way for a moment. And then close your eyes and just sit here for your, with yourself for a moment and experience what it's like to just sit here, um, breathing and feeling. And then maybe close your eyes and imagine one of those two friends sitting in front of you. 
Just, just, you don't have to see them. If you do, that may be there. But just, you know, kind of pretend that they're sitting there and you're sitting there together with your eyes closed. One of those friends. And now, uh, just imagine that that friend kind of gets up and walks away for a little while. And the other friend comes in and sits down in front of you. You, know, you hear the sound of them leaving and the sound of the other arriving and you, you, you experience that. You, you know that this is your other friend sitting in front of you. And what does that feel like to have that friend sitting in front of you? And so open your eyes and I'm curious, did any of you feel a difference thinking about the two friends sitting in front of you? No? Some of you did, some of you didn't. Um, sometimes this can be a way in. You know, other, you know, again, there's lots of different ways that we uh, can connect with this. And for me, the imagery was hard, but this was easier. For others, the imagery may be easier. Um, for some, it may just be the, co- the, the evoking of the name will ev- uh, evoke the, the person. And so, um, you know, for me, when I kind of brought in or pretended almost like, Oh, that person sitting in front of me. It's almost like there's a, there's a we feeling of that me with that other person. And then uh, with that sense of that person, in whatever way we can, we, we, we start with kind of this intention to connect with a particular person. And then maybe do some reflection around that particular person. What do you appreciate about that person? Before we even get to the phrases, what do you appreciate about that person? Maybe things that they've done that have supported you in your life. Just reflecting a little bit about their goodness, essentially, about things that you appreciate about them. If in this reflection, parts of your mind are saying, yeah, well, they did that, but they also did that. Just set the, they also did that aside for a little while. And, uh, and just like let yourself appreciate what they have offered you. And then we can begin expressing a wish. You know, may you be happy. May you be healthy. May you be safe. May you be at ease. And with those reflections, with those conscious words that we're using in the mind, you know, the, the practice isn't a mantra practice. It's not just kind of rolling those words through. You know, that, that can serve as a form of concentration in a way to just have particular thoughts roll through in the mind. But we are aiming here to connect with the meaning of those phrases. What does it mean to wish this person to be happy? And we can sometimes even use a, um, an image or a, a sense of with one friend that I was doing this for, this friend was an artist, and so I envisioned her in her artist studio, and you know the kind of what that might mean for her to be there, and the the quality of delight and joy that she has in creating art, and so that kind of began to evoke a little bit more of that feeling of connection, and yeah, the wish, yeah, I hope you, I hope you're really happy there. And so we begin to uh, use our reflective capacity. And then, how does it land? How does it feel to make that wish? This is really where the, the mindfulness 
begins to support us because we may, we may at times feel a little bit of a shift there, a little bit of a, a sense of a delight in the thought of having our friend be happy. Maybe. And if that happens, the mindfulness begins to support the growth of that quality as we talked about before. We may also see in that wish some uh, rub. You know, kind of a... What this practice exposed for me early on um, was that I had the belief that if my friend was happy, it meant there was less happiness for me. It was kind of a feeling like happiness was a a, a limited commodity. It was a zero-sum game. Only a certain amount of happiness is available, and if my friend had some, it meant less for me. This was a belief that was exposed in my mind, and that is, it's a a mistaken belief, because actually... um, What I began to understand as I uh, continued with this practice was taking delight in the happiness of my friend makes the happiness multiply. It actually um, uh, makes more happiness to go around. And so the the part part of what we get to see as we explore these wishes is not only... You know, there's, there's kind of maybe three flavors of what might happen here, roughly. <clears throat> One is that we feel a little bit of a taste of delight, of connection, of ease of heart, of openness. Taste of that quality of connection and care and love. When we bring a friend to mind and offer those phrases, offer those wishes... Um, what also might happen is that feels kind of dry. Like you're knowing what you're saying, but you're not feeling anything. That is also um, uh, something that can happen. And for myself, what I've seen is when that's the place that the mind is, I can connect to my intention to wish my friend well. And this is kind of, for me, really, and I'll tell a story about this in a moment, uh, how it begins to build. We don't actually have to be feeling the feeling for the metta practice to be working. Using those thoughts, kind of inclining the mind in the direction. It's almost like, may I wish that I could feel the happiness. Uh, may, I f- may I at some point feel the happiness of my friend being happy. You know, kind of something like that. You know, it's, 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 it's just connecting to that intention in that direction. The other thing that we can feel, the other side of things that we can feel, is resistance, is aversion, is a sense of jealousy, is a sense of um, um, a, a reminder like bringing, like I said a moment ago, well, yeah, you know, I wish them well, but yeah, they did all these things and I just can't let those go. You know, so we, we have some rub with our friends. And so we begin to explore what, what, what might it mean to not dismiss, to not deny that those rubs are there, but to also hold those rubs in a bigger container, hold that, that sense of, yeah, they did those things. And 
And yet, can I, in a bigger um, container, hold, and may they be happy. May they be well and safe and healthy. Knowing that they've done these things. And so there's, a, uh, there's some work in the metta practice. And some of this comes back to the mindfulness. We recognize what is the response in the heart when we drop in these phrases. If there's constriction, we allow that. It's kind of like <clears throat> the, the metta quality then is kind of more towards ourselves. May I be okay that this resistance is here. And so that's a kind of form of metta for ourselves to hold that without condemning ourselves for that feeling. And this, um, this process or this practice really begins to uh, unfold um, um, through the embodied curiosity of how these phrases are landing, how this reflection is landing. And not resisting any of it. Not condemning ourselves for any of it. Not patting ourselves on the back for the feeling of the metta. It's bringing the mindfulness to what is arising in connection to aiming the mind towards the phrases. You can compare that a little bit to what happens in in the mindfulness practice when we aim our mind in the direction of the breath. I mean... How often is it that you aim your mind in the direction of the breath and it stays there for, for the whole period? Yeah, very rarely. Other things come up. We practice with those other things that come up. We notice that the attention gets pulled to a sound or an image or a thought arises in our mind and we recognize when uh, we come back and what's been the effect of all of that wandering, what's happening now. So we do that with our mindfulness practice and kind of similarly with the metta practice. We can't expect in the just beginning of doing this exploration that it'll be the imbuing of the all-encompassing world with loving kindness. It's a, it's a growth. It's a, it's a gradual process. I had an experience of the kind of gradual way that this can build. I did one... Um, one meditation retreat, a long meditation retreat, where I did metta the entire time. Um, it was, uh, you know, as, as, as much as I remembered. I would forget, of course, but I would just keep coming back to the phrases, offering the phrases to myself, to my, to my friends, to the benefactor, um, to difficult people, to neutral people. This is a kind of way, the categories that are encouraged that we, we um, explore these phrases in relationship to, and then eventually to all beings. Um, There's one period of time where I just kind of felt miserable. I was not feeling the metta. I was just feeling like really grumpy. And um, I was in the dining hall and I just thought, you know, okay. But well, okay, right. I can at least say the phrases and understand the meaning and feel how it feels in the heart to, to do that. And I just started with myself. So, may I be happy. Okay, yep, that's a, that's a thought. Not feeling much. How, okay, may I be healthy. Okay, well, that one I can feel into a little more. You know, health, 
Happiness was a little harder for me, but health, yeah, I can, yeah, I do, yeah, I want to be healthy, okay. So a little bit of a connection there. May I be safe? Yeah, that one. That one I'm on board for. <laughs> and, and so there was just these little tiny shifts of the feeling in the heart. And I kept going and feeling that feeling. It was like every time I dropped a phrase into the heart, it was like feeling this tiny little ember of some little shift of well-wishing for myself. And, uh, and then I, I started, you know, I, I finished my lunch and I started walking up the hill and I was just doing this kind of dropping in the phrase and, okay, how is it feeling? And it kind of began to feel like there was this little tiny, tiny ember of warmth in my heart towards myself. And each phrase, each time I expressed that wish felt like a, just a gentle blowing on that ember, the way you would blow on a small ember of a flame to kind of, you know, not blow it out, but just, you know, kind of begin to strengthen the the flame. So each time I said a phrase, it was like gently blowing on that ember and feeling how it kind of spread a little bit. And by the time, 20 minutes later, so I was walking up the hill, my mood, I was like, I was so happy. And it was a stunning transformation to me to recognize the power of using this reflective process to um, change the quality in the mind through this connection with feeling. How is it with, with making these wishes? This is a powerful tool for us in our, in our meditation practice. So it's time to stop. I, I thought I would have time both to do a guided meditation, to take questions, but so that didn't happen. But what I would like to, um, to do over the next, I'm here um, until I leave for the March month long, I'm here for of the next five weeks. And I thought I would just explore this practice with, with this group, with you. Uh, over the next um, over the next few weeks, uh, so you know we'll start, and I'll just I'll warn you now for those of you who come regularly, we'll do a, a, a little bit of a, a guided mental practice at the beginning, and then you know explore the various things about this practice over the coming weeks. And so I hope this is of interest. Uh, it's to me, it's it feels like an important side of wise effort. This actual aiming the mind towards the cultivation of these qualities uh, in kind of uh, um, an expansion of how the mindfulness works. So, uh, Yeah, Tuesday morning. So I'm here for the next two Tuesdays, then I'm away. Is that right? Yeah, the next two Tuesdays, then I'm away for a week teaching a retreat, and then, then the next two Tuesdays. So the next four weeks, the, the month of February, I'll be, I'll be offering this in the mornings. Yeah, so thank you.